0: John Ziegler here, excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD. And I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly. And my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream. Although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to imbucbd.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at imbuecbd.com. That's imbuecbd.com. Promo code John Z. This is episode number 101 of the Individual One podcast. And for the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler, and we are bravely broadcasting by a thread. From Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network, this is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective because, unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter, at pod at individual, the number one uh, pod. Obviously, uh, coronavirus is still and will continue to be the major news of the day. And we will begin this episode with an update on the latest statistics. First, here in the United States, we are now over 420,000 confirmed cases of the coronavirus, by far the most in the entire world, over 14,000 deaths, Almost 2,000 deaths yesterday. Looks like we're going to be headed for about the same number today. The latest numbers out of New York and New Jersey are stabilizing. There's no growth in the number of new cases or deaths, but they're still terrible as this continues to be the epicenter of the story. And I'm going to get momentarily into just how much New York City really is the epicenter of all of this. Uh, na- worldwide, we're now over 1.5 million confirmed cases, over 85,000 deaths in Italy, which has been by far the the hottest spot over the last several weeks, things have stabilized a bit. They continue to very slowly. Uh, get over the other end of the curve. Italy has over 140,000 confirmed cases and 18,000 deaths. The United States will soon overtake Italy in deaths. This is something I did not think was going to happen, despite the fact that uh, we have about six times the population of Italy. Uh, Spain has slightly more confirmed cases than Italy and uh, slightly fewer deaths. In the United Kingdom, they now have over 60,000 confirmed cases, 7,000 deaths. And they are increasing uh, at an alarming rate. Uh, Wimbledon and the British Open have been canceled, not postponed, but canceled uh, there in the U.K. In Canada, 19,000 cases and thankfully just 400 deaths. And Australia has also been doing extremely well with 6,000 cases and uh, just 50 deaths so far. A lot of focus on Sweden because uh, of the fact that they have taken a very hands-off uh strategy in trying to deal with this they are at 8500 cases and 700 deaths so it's interesting to compare that to australia Uh, Although there are differences, obviously, both geographically as well as population, but uh, a similar number of cases, yet a much higher death rate so far in Sweden. And Mexico, which has also taken a fairly uh, laissez-faire attitude, has less than 3,000 cases and 140 deaths. Now, there have been a couple of important markers that have been passed statistically in all of this. One of the major ones is that we have now passed the number of deaths uh, here in America— that occurred because of the swine flu. And this swine flu marker, at least to me, has always been very, very significant. And I misread it. And I'll explain why I misread it uh, shortly. But I have mentioned many times on this podcast that the swine flu in 2010 ish, over a much longer period of time than we've experienced coronavirus statistically so far, 12,500 Americans died of that. Now, 2- 275,000. Uh, Americans were hospitalized for that. We have not had that nearly that many hospitalizations yet for coronavirus, but we we very well may. And it might be much larger than that. And apparently 60 million people uh, got the swine flu. We have no idea uh, whether or not we'll ever get to that kind of number because, you know, obviously the the issue of what is confirmed uh, and what is presumed is very nebulous. But the reality is the bottom line here is, of course, deaths, and Donald Trump, very early on, described the Obama administration's response to the swine flu as a disaster. That's the exact word he used. Correct. He said it was a disaster. And when he said that, and he said it with such confidence, and he said it numerous times, I thought, wrongly, <laughs> that he was, was making a determination that that's where the goalposts are, that we're going to do better than that that we're going to be able to, to claim plausibly with statistics that this was not as big a deal or did not have as much impact in the United States as the fly, swine flu did. And it, at, the, at the beginning, I thought that made some sense. All right, uh, you know, we will do better than, uh, than 12,500 deaths. I, I really did believe that. I, and I was wrong. I was wrong about that, and I will also likely very soon be wrong about my prediction that we would not have as many deaths as Italy. Although, again, to keep in mind, it's important to point out we have six times the population as Italy. Let me explain why one more time. I've done this previously, but I want to do it again. Why uh, I and Donald Trump uh, were wrong with regard to the swine flu marker and why it matters. The first thing that threw me off was... I was astonished at how well the Asian countries, specifically China, although I never fully trusted their numbers, had been able to handle this. And I thought, they're the ones that were most vulnerable. Uh, They dealt with this first. They had the least amount of warning. Uh, And yet when you look at their numbers, they're really not that bad. Again, we're never gonna know what the real numbers out of China were. And this coming from China was part of the perfect storm because no one trusts anything out of China and rightfully so. So we didn't know if it was really that bad. We had no way of knowing because what they were telling us was not trustworthy. Then I misinterpreted Trump's bravado and his his braggadocia and uh, his attitude towards all this, not because I trust him as a person. Obviously, I don't. I know that he is a pathological liar. Correct. And I know he's clueless. Correct. But I have also had some faith in his survival instincts. And I am one who does not believe that he is a complete moron in all areas. I think he's a book moron, but I've often referred to him as a savant when it comes to his own survival. And it made no sense to me that he could have that much confidence that we were going to do better than the swine flu and put his entire presidency and re-election on the line for that unless he had really good reason to do so. Well, if he, he may have thought he did, but clearly... He did not. Correct. And he was wrong. And I was wrong to have trust in his level of confidence. I was also wrong to have confidence in America. And this goes to American arrogance. I mean, I, I've grown up uh, as a as an al, uh, you know, 53 year old person who uh, believed that, that America was the best country in the world, not because of some sort of divine right, but because of a series of of circumstances that that we as Americans would find a way to do better than other places, and, and that we had certain advantages that would allow us to do better than elsewhere in, in the world, specifically Italy. And I outlined the reasons why we had advantages over Italy. And again, you can you have to correct for population. But let's face it. The reality is that right now, America and and in the future and near future, it's going to be clear that America is going to suffer as much or more than any other country because of the coronavirus. And part of that, a small part of that, is because we value our freedoms and liberty, at least we used to before this, more than anybody else. So that, in a, in a weird way, made us more vulnerable to that, to this uh, situation. But I don't think that that's really what's going to rule the day, because frankly, I have been stunned by by how little we really value our liberties and our freedoms and how willing we are to just go along with this government shutdown, even when it makes absolutely no possible sense. But I had faith that we, as Americans, would figure out a way to do better than this, even with Donald Trump is president. And let's just take a moment to consider just how absolutely unbelievable it is that when facing this crisis, uh, the likes of which we've never faced before in modern times, we have as our president, Donald Trump.
1: You cannot be serious.
0: I mean, it's really unbelievable. It was unbelievable he was president Uh, under normal circumstances, under good circumstances. And I consistently said, what about when we have a crisis? What about when we have a crisis? There's no way if he serves two terms, we can get through eight years without a legitimate crisis. Now, I never specifically anticipated something like this, but Donald Trump was unfit to be president during the best of times. During the worst of times, he is obviously absurdly unfit. And it is mind blowing to think that somehow the guy who I used to watch on The Apprentice, the reality TV show, which my wife loved, which it drove me crazy just watching him on a reality TV show because I didn't think he was fit to host a reality TV show. Watching him in the boardroom make decisions on who should get fired and not was like watching an infant. And this is the man who is now at the helm during this time of unprecedented crisis. It's just flat out ridiculous. I also had misplaced faith in science. This sounds contradictory because I've been wrongly criticized as being anti-science. I am not anti-science. I am a, a data person. I embrace science. At least rational science. Uh, I don't want to go all Trump and talk about my my uncle who went to MIT, but my grandfather on my father's side was a, a, a literally a rocket scientist for NASA, famous. Look him up, Hans Ziegler. Uh, so this is this is not a situation where I'm anti-science. Uh, I actually had more faith in science. I thought that by now we would figure out a legitimate way to blunt this. We've got all the best minds in the world with all the resources in the world focused on one thing. And I realize it's been a short period of time, but I really honestly thought we would figure something out by now. Uh, And I I had a conversation with my good friend Congressman John Yarmuth. Uh, over the weekend. And he still, he believes that something's going to get figured out uh, that will will eventually uh, save us here. Although, you know, save is a relative term. He has no inside information on that. He's just using common sense like I am. So I had misplaced faith that science was going to figure out a way to save us. And then the, the maybe the biggest thing that I miscalculated was just how vulnerable and what a bunch of morons the people in New York City were going to be. Uh, New York City is really the not just the epicenter of the damage. New York City is the entire reason why right now, now this could change, but right now New York City is a massive portion of why this is being perceived and in some ways actually is and a medical catastrophe. You obviously, you cannot remove New York City from America. New York City is a huge part of America in every possible way. But if you did, and I'm going to illustrate this momentarily with the numbers, if if by chance you had a country without New York City right now, we wouldn't we would not be nationwide in a situation that was catastrophic. We would not be even in a situation that was remotely as bad as other areas of the world. But New York City and northern new jersey is driving all of this all of it and it's becoming increasingly obvious that it's because of two basic factors or at least two one is incredible population density and number 2 is their subway system the sub which is still somehow uh, ongoing right now still has not been totally shut down and, and i've been very critical of the way that the shutdown has been implemented and uh, weirdly, I'm actually in favor of a few things that have not happened that would actually be more rational. Instead of doing things like shutting down the ability of my daughter to swing on a swing across the street, which won't do anything. How is it, for example, that not all gas stations have been required to eliminate self-service? Gas stations are incredibly vulnerable. You're touching the same buttons and the same equipment that other people are, hundreds of other people are touching that day. So if we're going to do this, let's do it right. Why not require gas stations to provide service with one person pumping the gas with gloves? How are ATM machines open? How is that possible? ATM machines are way more of a vulnerability than some of the other things that we're banning. Yet somehow those are open. And the subway system is another perfect example of this. So so New York City, and the data shows very, very clearly. I mean, if you look at the data of where people live who got this, it almost looks like a map of the subway system of New York City. So it's obvious from a common sense standpoint that the New York City subway system and their density and maybe even the, the average New Yorker's attitude, which frankly I like in most cases, all led to a perfect storm of, of bad circumstances. And yet somehow their governor, Andrew Cuomo, was a hero out of all this, which is just bizarre to me. But I want to illustrate for you just how dramatic this tale of two countries is right now. Now, I, I want to make clear I'm well aware there's a problem in New Orleans. I'm well aware there's a problem in Detroit. There's other places uh, that are mainly urban areas where, uh, where there are quote-unquote hot spots. Yes, it is moving into rural America. Rural, rural America is not immune to this, but rural America is not going to have, in general, the same kind of catastrophes anywhere close to what we're seeing in New York City. So here are some some statistics that are really quite remarkable. If you take the five hardest-hit states— New York and New Jersey, which is really just New York City. Let's be clear about that. Upstate New York has not had major problems. Southern New Jersey has not been anywhere near nearly as hard as northern New Jersey, which is essentially part of New York City. So it's New York, New Jersey, Louisiana, Michigan, and Massachusetts, all of which have plausible explanations for why they're outside the norm with regard to impact. If you take the five states hardest hit per capita, they have 50 million people in their population. 50 million people, all right? So 50 million people, as of yesterday, those five states have 8,500 deaths. 8,500 deaths in those five states out of 50 million people. The rest of the country, has 277.5 million people. That's a lot more than 50 million. That's over five times as many people, all right? 277.5 million people and about half the deaths. 4,300 deaths. Now, that can change. No one knows for sure whether or not that other portion of the country is going to become like the five hardest-hit states. I think there are rational reasons for why they will not. Uh, but uh, let me put it in another way that makes it, I think, even more stark. In those five states, the five hardest-hit states, one out of every 5,900 people has died of coronavirus. That's a significant number. It's not an insane number. It's not a uh, you know unprecedented in the history of, of medical uh, problems and pandemics, but it's a significant number. One in 5,900 people in those five states has died of coronavirus, at least according to the statistics as of yesterday. In the rest of the country, it's one in 64,500. One in 64,500. Now, to put that number in perspective, because obviously one of the many, many, many problems here is people are really bad at math and they haven't thought about this before in this way. But 8,000 people die in America every single day. Every single day. The numbers I just gave you are for over a month period of time. So, it, so it, outside of those five hardest states, in the last month, over a month, you had a chance, if you lived in one of those states, statistically, you had a 1 in 64,500 chance of dying of coronavirus. Every single day... Every human in America, under normal conditions, has a one in forty-one thousand chance of dying. That's every day. Every day you walk this earth as an American, you have a one in forty-one thousand chance of dying. Yet, over if you take all the stats over the last month, in the non-five, you know, except for the five hardestest states. You take the other 45 states plus the District of Columbia and everything else, you take every other American, it's 1 in 64,500 over a month as opposed to natural life providing the chances of dying at 1 in 41,000, technically 250, giving uh, give or take on the numbers. I'm not trying to say this is not an issue, this is not real, that we shouldn't be taking this seriously. I'm trying to put this into some semblance of perspective. And the perspective has been completely and totally lost in all this. I am very curious about the demographics of those who have died. And I'm very uh, skeptical that we are being told uh, I- exactly what the real truth here is. For instance, at this point, we should be able to access. I have not been able to do so. If, if someone can, please let me know. Uh, I would love to know what the, the answer to this question is what is the average age of the person who has died in America? And why haven't we been told that? That's a pretty easy number to come up with. We know who has died among the 14,000. The first thing you know about them is how old are they? Why are we not being told what the average age of the person dying is? And that doesn't even get into the issue of underlying conditions. But my guess is that number, and I don't know what it would be, but based upon, you know, when I look at uh, the, the local statistics, we're able to, be, to know exactly the ages of the people who have died, and I, and I extrapolate that nationally. My guess is that number would be rather high. I don't know what it would be, but it would be high. I don't know if it would be in the 60s. It might even be in the 70s, but it would be high. And that, even again, takes away the issue of underlying conditions, which are almost fundamental to those who have died here. Again, I'm not trying to say this doesn't matter. I'm not trying to say that these people's lives don't matter. I'm trying to provide some semblance of perspective when it comes to how bad this is and what kind of... Uh, of sacrifices we, are, we should be willing to make to try to curtail something that we might not even have the ability to curtail in the first place. There's also an emerging storyline that more African-Americans are dying than other uh, racial demographics. Now, I'm skeptical of this partially because we have an urban-rural divide here. And obviously, the African-American population is greater in urban areas than it is in rural areas, and especially in some of the cities that have been hardest hit. New York City, New Orleans, Detroit, a couple of other areas. Is that happening because there are black people there? No, I think it's happening because urban areas have denser populations and there are other aspects of uh, what makes those cities unique. New Orleans had Mardi Gras, which could not have helped Uh, And and frankly, let's face it, Louisiana is the strangest state in the country to begin with. So, I mean, there's all sorts of weird things going on there. Uh, So I don't have an explanation uh, for why African-Americans might be more likely to die here other than that urban-rural split. The media, of course, wants to tell you that it's because they don't have access to health care that is as as good as the rest of the country because of economic and maybe even racial discrimination issues. I don't know. I am I am skeptical of that explanation. I'm sure that there are if it's true, I'm sure there are multiple explanations. Uh, Of course, the one we don't want to talk about, uh, regardless of uh, of racial component, is that some races might be more or less vulnerable to this. I have theorized that maybe part of the reason why the Asian countries did relatively well here is that maybe genetically they were more predisposed to doing so. We have I have no idea. I'm just trying to come up with an explanation for why their numbers, despite the fact that they were theoretically more vulnerable to this, did far better than anybody else. So... I'm just trying to figure out what's going on here and try to provide some semblance of perspective because I'm telling you the mainstream news media is not providing any perspective at all. They're providing only one side of this, and it's creating even more damage than has already been done economically, from a civil liberties standpoint, uh, from a mental health standpoint. I mean, I I cannot emphasize enough how much collateral medical damage is going to be done uh, thanks to this shutdown in ways that might end up being far more dramatic than the final numbers on the virus itself. And here in California, we've seen this in in a way that has been uh, literally maddening because we have a governor by the name of Gavin Newsom Uh, who uh, I'm now referring to as King Gavin Newsom. Correct. uh, Who has this bizarre relationship with Trump because uh, he used to be married to Donald Trump Jr.'s fiance, which is just incredibly bizarre. Correct. I'm sure that they have very strange conversations. At times, Trump has actually praised Newsom, which has only helped further uh, Newsom's desire to control every aspect of our lives given this opportunity, even though Newsom is exceedingly anti-Trump and I believe is trying to use this a- as a political tool to either uh, run for president in in 2024 or 2028, whatever it is, because he knows, let's face it, he knows there's really only two options here. Joe Biden uh, beats uh, Donald Trump and then probably only serves one term uh, meaning that there's going to be an opening, or, or Trump wins re-election, in which case it's a free-for-all in, in uh, the next election in 2024. And I'm not suggesting that's his only motivation, but this guy is a political animal and he's not to be trusted, and he is being applauded for everything he does. Everything he does is being applauded, even when it makes absolutely no sense. And here in California, we're in a situation where every local official is trying to do, outdo each other to show how against the virus they are. Uh, in one local county, you are now being fined $1,000 for being outside without a mask. You cannot be serious. That's a fact, and it's happening. you outside without a mask. You get fined $1,000. It's just flat out ridiculous in an area where the numbers are not that bad and where in a state our King Gavin Newsom is now, and this is just mind-blowing to me, he's now giving away ventilators to other states. So so riddle me this. Okay, all I've ever asked for is a consistent, logical argument. So we're, we're shut down. In as, in as draconian and anti-civil liberties way as we possibly could because we are trying to flatten the curve, right? We're trying to flatten the curve so that when we have this inevitable surge, our health care system will not be overwhelmed. Okay, I get that. I get it to a certain degree. However, when you're giving away 600 ventilators— you are acknowledging, just as the worst projections currently indicate here in California, that we are never going to get to a point where the healthcare system is overwhelmed. There is zero evidence that the healthcare system is even closed. In fact, there are healthcare workers who are being laid off right now because all other surgeries and procedures have been delayed. There's nothing for them to do. So so we're we're nowhere near anything close to the uh, health care system being overwhelmed. The projections indicate we're never going to get to that point, no matter when that inevitable surge is. And still no one has been able to explain to me why the surge is going to happen so far after we do the shutdown, if the shutdown is so effective. That's a whole other issue. But so we, the projections tell us we're not going to get a situation where we are even short of one hospital bed not even one, at the height of whenever this is going to happen in California. Why it's going to come later than everybody else, no one's been able to explain that to me either. But, but we've, we're never going to have that situation. The governor is acknowledging that by giving away 600 ventilators, and yet we are still cracking down more almost every day. Why? How does that make any sense? And by the way, how is it effective... From a morale standpoint, when you are taking more and more freedoms away, making life more and more miserable, and you don't even have an end date. You don't even have an end date. In fact, they're implying that this end date here in California might not be until June sometime, which is to me the most frustrating part. It's one, not knowing. And then there's the other aspect of we're actually being punished here because allegedly what we're doing is working. Imagine that. What, by, by flattening the curve, you're actually elongating the pain. You're elongating the economic pain. You're, you're eliminating the entire school year. Uh, you're going to cause all sorts of collateral damage, domestic abuse, suicide, depression, alcohol abuse, drug abuse. Uh, forget about, it. By, by the way, all the other surgeries that are being delayed. How many people are going to die because of that? over an extended period of time. And let's be clear, when you shut down the economy for a month, that's enormously damaging. But it becomes, to use the alarmist favorite word, exponentially more damaging every month you do so after that. It's, you know, there's all sorts of analogies, but it's, you know, when you leave a house alone for an extended period of time or a car alone outside for an extended time, you don't just, you can't just, Start the car and and let it, and start going right away. There there are other aspects of this that become debilitating, and it becomes much more difficult, and the damage becomes much more. I mean, local businesses decide, you know what? Screw it, I'm going out of business. We've created this this socialism plan for people that has actually incentivized them not working, which is already having an impact. In in many areas, We're, here we are. We have now massive unemployment, and yet we've created disincentives for people to take the jobs that actually exist. It's it, it's unbelievable.
1: It's just flat out ridiculous.
0: So, and look, I want to make this very clear with regard to these extreme measures. There, there's two things that that have driven well, among many that have driven me crazy. Uh, with regard to the extreme measures, other than the fact that I'm a libertarian who believes that this country was founded on freedom and liberty, which clearly was delusional because we've forgotten completely about that. One is, do the extreme measures actually do anything positive? And we don't know yet. And I, I, my gosh, I must have had hundreds of people on Twitter screaming at me that I shouldn't be bitching about the restrictions here in California because our numbers are so much better than everybody else. Can we please do some damn math? God. You know what part of part of all this is maybe punishment for a country that doesn't understand basic math. But but here's the here's the issue. It takes 2 to 4 weeks. 2 to 4 weeks for someone to from the time they get the virus to the time they become a statistic. Whether that statistic is confirmed case, a hospitalization, or, heaven forbid, a death. It takes two to four weeks. We are not yet at the three-week mark of the state shutdown here in California. That means that technically we are still, today, in today's statistics, we are still getting people who got this before the shutdown. Therefore, we cannot yet make a statistical comparison to determine what impacts the extreme measures have. I believe we will be able to start making that comparison in the next few days. I I think three weeks is a pretty fair marker. And I'll be making that marker on my Twitter page, and I'm sure on this podcast as well, to be able to try to discern, okay, what's really real, what's actually working, and what is just, uh, you know, fascism gone crazy because they're, they're getting applauded for this. And when people get applauded, they continue to do more of what gets them applauded. Plus, they, they just, as liberals, they just love the idea of, of controlling your life. Uh, and, and so we don't know how effective they are. My whole thing has been not to not do anything. I mean, God, that's the, that's the second thing that drives me most crazy, is how many people have said, so, John, your theory is to do nothing? Um, no, morons. There are a vast, vast series of choices between doing nothing and shutting down, shutting down all of life at the point of a bayonet wielded by government tyranny. Those are not the only two choices. There is a middle ground here that is vast. And in my opinion, and I'm fascinated to see what happens in Sweden and a couple of other places and a few states here in the United States, in my opinion, we could have gotten 90 to 95%, maybe even higher of the benefit of flattening the curve simply through public education and by eliminating huge crowds or even any crowds at all. I have no problem. You want to ban huge spectator events by the government? Okay, fine, because that's the only way that that's going to happen is if the government steps in. I'm a little more queasy from a science standpoint about closing schools, and it's not because I have a, a seven-year-old girl who's devastated she can't go to school back when, right when she was starting to make friends, but because I think that there is a scientific argument to be made, especially in a situation where children were not very vulnerable to this, that we are creating more problems in the future. I've read a lot about this. We are creating more problems in the future by not having herd immunity. So therefore, we could have we may be actually screwing ourselves in the long run by having closed down schools. But I I get if you really think this is a massive emergency, all right, maybe you close down schools for a while. But the most the biggest part of this is wash your hands, don't touch your face, and don't breathe on anybody. That's 90% of the battle. And that does not require government mandate. It doesn't. And and yet somehow we've gotten to this point where well, no, it has to be done by the government because people will not will, will not behave. Okay, some people won't behave, but you know what is in, is incredibly powerful? Uh, public pressure, public shaming. Uh, not to mention if, if uh, a huge portion of the population is staying at home and, and uh, social distancing, it's kind of hard for anyone else to violate social distancing because there's no place for them to do it. There's no way for them to do it. You know, you're able to get away from somebody who might be approaching you. Uh, and so I, 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 to me, we have created the maximum amount of harm in every possible way for limited gain, and I'm not even sure in the long run it's going to be any gain at all, any gain at all. That's the part of this that is so frustrating, is that we might be actually setting ourselves up for a second outbreak come the fall and winter, which we would not have if we had handled this in a more rational fashion now. But because no one's allowed to say that. I mean, I I have gotten so much hate on Twitter uh, because people think I'm in, somehow in favor of people dying or I'm not against the virus. It's all about virtue signaling. People want to signal their virtue about how much they're against the virus. And the media doesn't provide any opportunity for another side, locally or nationally. Everyone in the media is scared out of their minds of not going along with the program because they'll be looking like they're in favor of the virus or they're not against the virus. Enough, And of course, the alarmists have the, the inherent advantage. And this is another mind-blowing aspect of this. The alarmists can be wrong all day long. All day long they can be wrong and no one calls them on it. I am wrong when I said I thought we weren't going to have as many uh, deaths as Italy and I didn't think we were going to have as many deaths as the swine flu. I was wrong. I've admitted it. I've explained why that happened. I'm still going to be way closer than the original alarmist projections of over 2 million Americans dying. And, and, and I I'm, I'm also still believe I'm going to be closer to right in the secondary projections of 100 to 240,000 people dying, even if we do all this perfectly. We are not going to have, I feel strongly about this, by summertime, 240,000 people dying in this country of coronavirus, uh, which was part of even the president's Team's own projections, Fossey and Bricks, totally bought into this idea that that 240,000 people. This is just a few days ago. Are even if we do everything perfectly, are going to die in this country. I do not believe that. I'll once again admit it if I'm if I'm wrong. But I'm pretty confident I'm going to be right. So why is it that the ex, the so-called experts, they can be wrong all day long. But as long as they're wrong on the alarmist side, no one cares. No one. No one asks for any accountability. No one disputes their credibility going forward. I don't know why we keep listening to these people since they continue to be wrong. They continue to change their projections. Why, why do they not lose any credibility? But if you're on the other side, oh, my gosh, and you're wrong by you know, a fairly small margin at this point, statistically, somehow you're a bad person and you're not to be believed. It, it, it's really it, it's It's unbelievable. It's scary. And, uh, and frankly, um, there's a free speech aspect of this. I mean, it's religious. And, and the alarmist argument, this is what scares me into the future, the alarmist argument is fail-safe because they can always claim, well, the, the, them giving the warning of 2 million-plus people dying is what prevented 2 million-plus people from dying and if if it and they even even said, you know, if this goes right, people are going to say we overreacted. Well, maybe you over maybe they're going to say that because you overreacted <laughs> and not because you prevented millions of deaths. Because we've lost all sense of perspective here. We we uh, again, no one is diminishing uh, the people who have died. Death is terrible, but you know what else? Death is inevitable. And these are way more deaths than I thought, way more deaths than, way more deaths than Donald Trump thought were going to happen, way more deaths than a lot of people thought, who are far more, uh, have far more expertise in this area than I do. I'm just using my common sense and looking at the data, but it just, it really bothers me in the long run now. Once this narrative has now been set, and it has been set, especially now that New York is a disaster because the media is all in New York, and so now, as I've said numerous times before, it doesn't matter what the reality is. This is the biggest thing that's ever happened of all time, the biggest catastrophe, bigger than nine eleven, uh, and 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 it must never be allowed to happen again. So now we're going to go through this again sometime, based upon this same concept. The playbook has already been written. Make some some ludicrous claims about millions of people dying and will shut down every everything. A couple million people were never going to die in this country of this. You know why? Because that would have required us trying, trying to spread the virus to the most vulnerable. If we had tried, in other words, you know, we had gone on with normal life without any knowledge of the virus whatsoever. And we had taken all sorts of risky behavior on purpose to try to see how many people could die. Then maybe we could have gotten to two million. But there, but there is a natural reaction in this age of communication. See, our greatest advantage here is we have instant communication. They did not have that in 1918. There was no instant, they didn't even know what the hell was happening in 1918 to long into that situation. Hell, they didn't even know what DNA was in 1918. They knew nothing in 1918. We have enormous advantages with regard to communication. Public education and and warning people about the dangers would have eliminated right off the bat a a huge portion of that two million number. That two million number was never. Ever going to happen, but it was used to scare the living daylights out of us and to dictate policy. Now, as far as how bad this is going to get, I still don't know. No one knows. That's what the most amazing thing is. Listen to the experts. Listen to the experts. There are no experts in this situation. We've never been in this situation before. That's why the experts keep changing their tune every single day. But if I had to pick one indicator as to whether or not New York is the future for the United States of America, look at Florida. Florida is the indicator. Florida is a large state. Florida was slow to go into a shutdown. Florida got ripped for having spring break. Uh, Florida is obviously a state that we will be able to determine whether or not weather has a major impact on this because it's a warm weather state. So if Florida either does or does not explode and, and let me tell you and I took heat for this and maybe it's a it's an it's a, certainly a politically incorrect thought but you you know and you're not a lot lot you're not allowed to have politically correct incorrect thoughts anymore fever! Uh, but it is clear to me that there are a lot of liberals on Twitter who would love they will never admit this but they would love to see Florida explode with lots of cases and deaths because it would justify uh, one, I think they have some some vengeance against Florida because it voted for Trump, uh, but all and i 'm talking about a small number of people here, but this is this is this is a legitimate uh, phenomenon among some people who are really looking forward to Florida suffering to prove that some of these extreme measures are justified because Florida didn 't do them right away, and that therefore that will be the reason why Florida has a major problem. I don't know what's going to be the future in Florida. I'm just telling you, look at Florida to determine a lot of different things. Uh, right now, Florida has 15,000 confirmed cases and only 309 deaths. That's a very low number per capita. That could change, but if it's, go- if it's going to be because Florida didn't do the shutdown soon enough, that should happen real soon. Frankly, it should have already happened with increased testing and, again, because of that lag period I've talked about, two to four weeks between getting this and becoming a statistic. But if it doesn't happen in the next couple of weeks, if Florida does not explode in the next week or two, then the argument that somehow them being slow to shut down really pretty much falls apart. But, of course— arguments aren't going to matter here. Logic isn't going to matter here. The data is such that people are going to be able to cherry pick whatever the hell they want. They're going to be able to come up with whatever narrative they want. The, the truth isn't going to matter. And it's going to create horrible, horrible precedents for the future. Now, as far as Trump more specifically is concerned, it is really baffling to me how uh, anybody, any demographic politically is excited about how Donald Trump has handled this. Uh, one of the more frustrating aspects for me, as someone who obviously is a conservative, who's a Trump critic, is that there are aspects of Trump's personality that I have thought and hoped would be good under certain circumstances. It has always been baffling to me why Trump's supporters, who love the fact that he's politically incorrect, never realize that he's only politically incorrect for situations that help him personally. Correct. And not the cause of fighting against political correctness. He doesn't really care about that. He only does it when he perceives it to be in his own self-interest. But I like the fact that at times Donald Trump is politically incorrect. I like the fact that at times he seems to have big balls. Well, those big balls, while they have shown up very periodically uh, and in a misplaced fashion during this crisis, have essentially disappeared. He's essentially been neutered by Dr. Fossey and Dr. Bricks. Fossey and Bricks are now in charge, and, and Trump has completely lost his balls. He tried to grab them back for about 15 minutes when he did this business, which was stupid, about reopening uh, the country for Easter, which now looks ludicrous given the way the numbers are, uh, especially in, in New York and New Jersey. Um, but uh, he, he quickly reversed himself once again there. And he has totally lost his balls. And Trump without balls is, com- is completely useless. I mean, I mean, what, what else is there? What else is there that Trump brings to the table other than his balls? And those balls are gone. And I don't know if he's ever going to be able to get them back because Fossey has them in a jar. And, uh, I'm, you know, I think Fossey's is probably a smart guy. He's been wrong all over. He's been all over the place. I mean, he has made every possible statement from the beginning of this. He's changed his projections. He changes his, his predictions almost every day. Uh, and so I don't understand why there seems to be this religious faith in Fossey. I think it's mostly because someone is looking for someone other than Trump to be, you know, liberals especially are making this desire to, to, to have faith in somebody that can make a decision other than Donald Trump. Uh, But you don't let scientists and doctors make policy decisions because doctors are always inherently going to side on the side of caution, extreme caution, especially when they become newly famous. And that's what the source of their fame is. The media loves him because he's Mr. Protect Everybody. Well, there's other aspects to consider here. And that's Trump's job. And Trump has decided, you know what, he can't do it right now. My balls are in a jar. Uh, Now, maybe that'll change once the statistics change. Trump seems to think the statistics are going to change. The stock market seems to think that the statistics are going to change. I I, I am baffled by how optimistic the stock market has been this week. Uh, It is is astonishing to me that, for instance, the S&P 500 is currently fairly significantly higher than it was after the dip in December of 2018. I mean, that is amazing. I, I, I think we might, in retrospect, who knows? Who the hell knows? But we in, in retrospect, we might be looking back on where the market is right now, considering the fact we're already in recession, and, and think, wow, uh, it's, a, it's remarkable to think how high it was at that point. Even though it's still uh, many, 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 many percentage points below, it's high. I mean, we are headed— obviously for a recession, maybe for a depression. In the next episode or two, I'm going to get into the difficulties we're going to have of getting out of this, regardless of how bad it is from a medical standpoint. So I am am baffled by the apparent optimism on the part of the stock market. Uh, As far as the sports question is concerned, uh, you know, there's some some rumblings that sports are going to try to get back into some semblance of normalcy in June or July. I don't see how this happens. I I really do not. I, I think that Major League Baseball's plan of trying to play all their games in Arizona is absurd. I, I mean, it makes absolutely no sense to me. It's just flat-out ridiculous. Even if you're logistically able to do it, uh, that's not baseball. That's not what baseball is. Baseball is more than just teams playing on a diamond in front of no crowds, uh, in Arizona. I mean, that, that's, that's spring training. That's not baseball. And, and, and no one's going to take that season seriously. Even if you're able to logistically pull it off, which I don't know if you can, I mean, it sounds like a logistical nightmare to me, but even if you can, no one's going to take it seriously. Especially in baseball, a, a sport that's based in history and how one year compares to another, no one is going to take a season <laughs> where you're playing what a hundred games, maybe all in Arizona, uh, in front of no crowds, uh, with no home teams, no away. Teams. I mean, it's just absurd. No, it, it's a it's a waste of time. It, it, it uh, and and it might even be a health risk depending on how they do it. And so. If baseball doesn't come forward and do it first, I keep going back to this, who's going to be first? Who's going to be first? No one's going to have the balls to be first. The people that should have the balls to go first are golf. But golf has completely curled up into the fetal position because they're so afraid of being attacked as rich white men and and doesn't help that donald trump happens to be a golfer too correct so uh golf which is a sport near and dear to my heart has completely laid down i i Uh, sent a blistering email to the United States Golf Association a couple days ago when they canceled the U.S. Senior Open, which I was planning on qualifying for, had signed up for. No postponement, just canceled it. Uh, They have not responded, even though they solicited emails, maybe because mine was a particular heat-seeking missile. Uh, It was very respectful. But when uh, golf needed them most, they were nowhere to be found. And golf should have been the leader in getting us back to some semblance of normalcy because of the social distancing aspects of the game to begin with. But that's not going to happen. So it's not going to be baseball. It's not going to be golf. Uh, Basketball and hockey are are not well suited for it. That means, I I, I cannot emphasize this enough, it's got to be football. Football is the one sport that has the power to make this happen. And whether or not they decide to go in August or at least in September when the regular season starts is going to be a huge, 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 maybe the biggest decision of all in how and if America ever gets back to any semblance of normalcy. Not just from a cultural standpoint. I'm talking from every other aspect because everything else will filter and domino effect from what football does. Politically, it should be noted that Bernie Sanders dropped out today. Who knew he was even still running? Uh, I find this to be a fascinating development. That Bernie Sanders is now dropping out of the Democratic uh, primary uh, process. Uh, he almost had it all. He almost had it all. He was one Jim Clyburn ad- endorsement from maybe being the Democratic uh, presidential nominee. He lost the battle, but he has won the war because we are now a socialist country. As Congressman John Yarmuth admitted in our interview in the in the, the last episode of the podcast uh, two episodes ago, episode number ninety nine. Check out that interview if you haven't yet. Uh, but the Democratic Congressman uh, admitted to me one, we're a socialist country, and two, that Bernie Sanders, had he been president, could never possibly have instituted the kind of socialism that we're currently experiencing. Now, it you can make an argument, you can make an argument. There was no choice here. You can make an argument that this was unprecedented. We were in an emergency. The whole thing was going to collapse and we didn't do this. I'm open to that argument. I'm not open to the argument that we didn't just become a socialist country. We are a socialist country in every possible way. And we're seeing more and more of this every single day. We're seeing that the incentives created by this stabilization bill, as John Yarmuth referred to it, are all socialist. It's not just the paying of many 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 people $1200 just straight for no for no reason whatsoever regardless of what their situation is and there's going to be lots of people who are going to get that money who who have no need for it who have not been harmed by what is happening i happen to have a lot of public school teachers in in, in my family public school teachers are living large right now they they they're going to they pretend to do at-home schooling via the internet that's a joke uh, so so they're, they're off now for the rest of the year. There's no pressure. They're going to get extra money. Uh, they have total job security. I mean, I realize that's a fairly small number of people, but it, it's not, uh, you know, a completely unique situation. But that's a, that's a drop in the bucket here. We're creating incentives for people to, to become unemployed, to, to not get jobs, to quit their jobs for all intents and purposes. And this was warned about by Republicans, and everyone said, "Sit down, shut up. You're in favor of the virus. Well, no, you're in favor of socialism. And it's largely because, as John Yarmuth said, Trump doesn't have a clue. He doesn't care. He claims to be against socialism when it when it suits his self-interest. But in, in all sense, for all intents and purposes, he embraced socialism because it was the only way he had to get out of this and maybe maybe salvage his presidency. So Bernie Sanders lost." the battle, but he has won the war in a way he could never have done if he had actually become president. Now, there is some indication that Trump is losing support with regard to his coronavirus response among even Republicans. There's a poll out that does indicate that, that that's the trend. I would like to see more data on that, but the approval ratings of Donald Trump are still higher than they were before this. There's some slight weakening, but by and large, his approval ratings have clearly not been hurt by the coronavirus situation. It's remarkable how little political damage has been done to Donald Trump so far, because as I've mentioned previously, I don't know to whom, to what group he is pleased. And, I, and I, I realize he has said virtually everything. He has taken every possible position on this. And so I guess there is a good number of people, especially in, in his cult. I love the poorly educated. Who they just take whatever it is they want him to say and then they ignore everything else. And part of that's by design from Trump. But when you take every possible position... We're you know underreacting, overreacting, reacting somewhere in the middle, every, everything in between. I mean, he's reversed himself so many times that if you want to find something that you agree with, that he he has said it at some point, and then you just you just ignore the parts that you disagree with. So I guess that has some bizarre advantage among his base because his base desperately doesn't want to believe that they have just destroyed the country because we put an unfit con man in office who was pretending to be a Republican. So they're going to hang on to whatever they possibly can to rationalize their support for him. But I cannot imagine that this is going to last as these numbers continue to go up and it becomes more and more obvious that America has suffered more than any other country Obviously, depending on how you do the metrics and Per cap and all that. But base people are very, very, very basic when it comes to math. When the numbers are the highest in America than they are anywhere else, that's all most people are going to care about. And that's going to become much, much more difficult to rationalize if you're Trump, especially when there's all sorts of statements you made saying we have this under control. This is not a big deal. This is just like the flu. It's all just going to disappear in a couple of weeks once April comes around. And all that turns out not to be true. So I, I do believe that gravity is eventually going to have its impact here. That does not mean that Trump cannot win. And, and in the next uh, couple episodes I, I plan to do, assuming we're still able to tape, which was we're on a day to day basis uh, with regard to that. But assuming we're still able to tape the, the podcast, which I, I for the record, I think we are going to be going to once a week going forward, at least during this uh, coronavirus period. So I, that is my intention for us to continue, as long as we possibly can, to do one episode a week of the podcast. And I will do a, a podcast on the, the scenario where Trump is able to survive this politically and even win re-election. It's not the most likely scenario, but I do think it is a legitimate, logical scenario that is still very, very plausible. and 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 with that said i'm going to slightly largely because of the optimism in the stock market which may be very misplaced but seems to be there and because there is some semblance of hope in the numbers uh, slowing down in many areas of the country and while it's, it's it is increasing in other areas but in the hottest spots it does seem to be slowing down a little bit especially in new york and new jersey and it has in other areas of the world, like Italy is on the other end of the, the mountain right now. So with all that, uh, I'm going to slightly adjust the re-election number for Donald Trump up from 20 percent to 25 percent as of today. Uh, as is always the case, uh, please remember to subscribe, rate and review. Uh, While also sharing this podcast via social media, follow us on Twitter at individual one pod. That's at individual number one pod until our next episode, which I anticipate being a week from today. uh, Thanks so much for listening. Please stay safe. My name is John Ziegler. This is the Global Story Network.